Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at the Book of Romans according to the theme of justice with Dr. Douglas Herrink, Emeritus Professor of Theology at the King's University and the author of Resurrecting Justice, Reading Romans for the Life of the World. Dr. Herrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dennis. So throughout the ages, scholars have uh, assigned all sorts of different key themes to the book of Romans, especially for Protestants, um, justification by faith, but others have sought um, to see Jewish and Gentile re- relations as key. But for you, the theme is justice. So how do you go about, how do you get to there? Well, I should first say that I'm not suggesting that justice is the only theme in Romans or that some of the other themes aren't, uh, that typically are addressed in Romans uh, aren't there. But uh, what I wanted to do is pick out what I consider to be an important theme in Romans, namely justice. And um, the re- how I get there is, uh, I kind of explained in the early part of the book, um, in Greek, uh, Paul has um, a certain set of words, uh, dikaios, dikaio, dikaiosene, um, and those words typically are translated into English with words like righteous, righteousness, and so on, justification. Um, and yet Paul doesn't have, uh, and, and so if we use the words uh, righteous or righteousness, we, we tend to think in, in, in religious terms, if you want to put it that way, uh, we're, we think that this has to do with our, our right relationship with God, um, and it has to do with more, our moral life, uh, you know, to be righteous is to be an upright moral person, and so on and so forth. Justification means being set right with God. And uh, again, I'm not saying uh, all, of that, all of that is simply invalid, but Paul really has only one word, uh, and within the discourse of Paul's time, uh, one set of words, I should say, he doesn't have a, a set of words that mean what we mean by righteousness, and another set of words that mean what we mean by justice. In other words, thinking about the wider social and political uh, issues. Paul only has one set of words, and that's that set of words that I just named. And Given that, um, and given that uh, readers of Paul will um, be be reading Romans within that one within the range of meaning of that one set of words, it seems to me justice just um, makes sense as something that Paul is writing about. Okay, he's not writing simply about or only about uh, right standing with God and moral uprightness at the individual level but he's also writing with that set of words about justice in the, those wider senses of the word. So um, if, if, if we then uh, start reading uh, the letter to the Romans, which has about um, 60 occurrences of words related to those, uh, that, that, that D-I-K or Dick set of uh, words, um, we see that it's it's everywhere in Romans. So, and, and I just can't imagine that uh, an ancient reader reading Romans would think that Paul is not saying anything about justice at these wider levels, but only about individual morality and individual relationship with God. And so why is it that so many Roman scholars don't see justice as a key theme 
and so many social justice activists or writers about justice don't see Romans as a book to go to. Uh, for for the social activist side of it, I think they don't see it, Romans as a, a place to go because most of the words uh, that appear in Romans don't get translated in justice terms. They get translated in righteousness terms. Um, scholars, by and large, uh, tend to... Um, I'm not sure why they tend to simply individualize uh, or think that Paul is... Uh, pretty much only speaking about individual righteousness. Um, they've probably got deeply in, in embedded in a certain way of thinking about Romans um, and um, don't see beyond that. I mean, there have been, there have been those who have uh, looked at Romans and said, I think Paul is thinking beyond uh, personal individual morality and religiousness. Uh, one one of those is N.T. Wright, for example, um, uh, Neil Elliott, um, Gordon Zerbe. So, so there have been those who say, let's pay attention to what Paul might be saying about justice if we don't simply translate these words always into individualistic terms. All right. And so um, you spend some time talking about the good news according to the first few chapters of Romans, uh, the good news of the Trinity, the resurrection, God's justice, and even of God's wrath. So um, what's important here for us to understand? Well, uh, thanks. That's a good question, because what's important for us to understand is that um, is that uh, Paul can't imagine the meaning of justice apart from God and God's um, work of justice in Jesus and the Spirit. So, um, so for Paul, uh, the whole discourse of justice is governed by his understanding of who God is, who the Son of God is in relation to God and, and God's work, uh, who the Spirit of God is, uh, and so on. Uh, ultimately, for Paul, justice is God's work um, into which we are called and incorporated um, but nevertheless, justice is not, in the first instance, what we're trying to do in the world, but rather what God uh, has done and is doing in the world through Christ and the Spirit. So, so, so it's very, it's very, it's very theocentric. Paul's understanding of justice is very theocentric. And how do you tie in the resurrection uh, to the good news? Oh, in terms good. of justice, uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean. You know, the, the crucifixion of Christ is very, very central for Paul in terms of, um, well, in terms of, of who Christ is and what his significance is and so on. But of, but of course, had Christ been crucified and never raised from the dead, then there would be no good news. It is the resurrection um, it is the good news of the resurrection that makes the crucifixion good news. Um, and it's the crucifixion that gives that particular meaning to um, the resurrection. It's the resurrection of the crucified one. Um, and so, so these two, resurrection and crucifixion, are always intimately uh, held together by Paul. 
It is, uh, it is the one who was crucified by the powers, um, powers both cosmic and um, human, uh, who is raised from the dead. And therefore, it is precisely the life of this one who is crucified, who is vindicated by God, uh, which is vindicated by God in the resurrection of him from the dead. And uh, the phrase God's justice for all to some would sound like God's judgment. Justice for me would be judgment because of my sin. But how is it justice? How is the justice for all of us good news? Uh, first of all, I, I, I believe it's uh, good news because uh, God's justice liberates us from enslaving powers. And, um, and those powers range from what I would call, call uh, you know, these cosmic uber powers of sin and death um, to the powers that work in the world today, uh, political, social, economic powers, um, to the powers that work in our own personal lives. Uh, so Paul's um, understanding of God's judgment is judgment um, upon those powers at work um, around us, among us, and in us. Um, God's destruction of those powers in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and God's clearing a space of liberation um, in which God then by the Spirit moves us um, uh, in in the life of justice. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And how is then God's wrath? How is that part of the good news? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So Paul introduces very early on in the letter um, the notion of God's wrath, starting at verse uh, Romans 1, verse 18. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from uh, heaven against all ungodliness or impiety and, uh, and injustice. And so, um, and what's interesting there is uh, that Paul doesn't say God's wrath is being revealed against all uh, impious and unjust people, okay? Mm. And so, where I take it from there, number a couple of things. First of all, um, Paul doesn't begin his letter with a declaration of God's wrath. Paul begins his letter with a declaration of the good news of God in Jesus Christ, God raising Jesus from uh, the dead, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, so, so it is, uh, the gospel is the apocalypse of the good news of God's justice in Jesus Christ. It's only after Paul has declared that robustly that he goes on to say, that the good news is also God's wrath against ungodliness and injustice. So where I take that, uh, after I've, I've wrestled with Romans 1 to 3 um, for, for a long time, but it strikes me that because Paul isn't saying God's wrath is directed against persons, but rather against, um, well, systems, um, it is the system of impiety, and by that, I th uh, so 118, uh, from 118 to, to chapter, uh, sorry, from 118 to 32, uh, I think Paul is declaring God's wrath against idolatry, hmm. um, and the way in which idolat idolatry as, uh, you know, systems that hold sway and power over the Gentile peoples, the way 
in which those systems lead people into wickedness. Okay. So, um, so there's the system there, there, there's the systemic problem of the Gentile peoples and their fundamental systemic problem is idolatry. Later on, uh, basically starting in, um, I don't know, roughly 217 or so, Paul speaks then also about um, uh, the way in which the law for the Jews functions as a system. And uh, it's, it's obviously it's different from the system of idolatry. He's not saying the Jews are idolaters. Uh, but he says the law creates problems for Jews. Um, and one of them is that it, it, um, it tends to set them up as judges over Gentiles, okay? Uh, it sets them up in a judging relation with respect to Gentiles. Um, the second problem with the law is that it doesn't give the life that the gospel gives, okay? So it's, it's important to understand, particularly with respect to the law, that Paul begins to see the problems with the law only in the light of the gospel, okay? It's the, it's the light that the gospel sheds on the Gentile peoples and the Jewish people that reveals the fundamental problems there. I mean, for a Jew, it would be easy to say, yeah, there are fundamental problems amongst Gentile people, uh, amongst the Gentile peoples. Um, and it, the fundamental problem is that they do, they do not know the true God and they worship false gods. Uh, it would be harder for a Jewish person to see some of the core problems with the law, the law of Moses. Um, but Paul says, in the light of the fact that God gives life and justice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in what God does in Jesus Christ, it becomes clear to Paul then that um, that, that life and justice is not given via the law of Moses. Um, and, and, and so that's his critique there, okay? Uh, also, also, of course, being critical of the way in which the possession of the law, having the law, um, in some measure, has turned um, the Jew Jewish people against Gentiles, okay? So it, it, set, it sets up a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Now, it's interesting, I read a review uh, that was talking about this uh, very chapter of your book, and the person said that you were simply borrowing from critical theory in your talk about systems. So how would you respond to that? Well, I, I, I haven't dived deep into critical theory, but of course, critical theory is in the air, and it's part of, part of what I've absorbed, but I, I, why would Paul not have some notion of, of systemic um, bondage? Uh, he speaks of principalities and powers in almost every letter that he writes. Uh, and these principalities and powers aren't, if I can just put it this way, aren't just kind of spooky things floating in the air. Um, these principalities and powers are working in this world. Uh, in First in, uh, Corinthians, for example, uh, chapter 1, I believe, he speaks about how those principalities and powers crucified the Lord of glory. Well, does he mean simply the human 
rulers and authorities who crucified the Lord of glory, or does he mean this whole systemic reality, which um, which both is present there in the Romans and present there in the Jewish authorities in particular? Um, uh, isn't he thinking about the way in which all that is brought to, to bear on God's very own Son and Messiah? So... Um, why should we think that Paul himself doesn't have uh, some kind of critical theory? Um, I think he does. <laughs> he's, got a, guess... he's got a much um, wider vision of uh, the ways in which powers are at work in the world than typically we do in North American individualistic understandings of human beings and their choices and decisions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I suppose there's some people that just want to see sin very individually and others just want to focus on systems. And yeah. But of course, it's a both and. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. So uh, in Romans 4, uh, you look at um, Abraham and Sarah and how Paul addresses their story and how that ties into uh, justice. Um, what is relevant there? What are the insights you gain from that? Well, um, of course, Romans 4 is one of the classic justification texts, right? Um, so uh, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, um, which is great. <laughs> but uh, what, what I want to do there is um, uh, basically unpack the word pistis, belief, or uh, faith, usually it's uh, translated in, in faith words. Um, uh, I, I construe it as trust, which is not unusual. It's not, certainly I'm not the first one or the last one who will understand that. I think Paul has, has in mind something far more like trust than faith as believing in something. Um, rather, Abraham trusted God, and God accounted that trust as Abraham's work of justice, if you want to put it that way, okay, or Abraham's justice. Um, and and it, it, there's a sense in which that then pervades the whole letter and pervades my book. Um, what is the first and most fundamental reality of uh, justice for um, believers in Jesus Messiah? Well, it is to trust God, Um Typically, when we start thinking of justice, we, we, we immediately think of, uh, number one, what's wrong, and number two, what can we do about it, right? Hmm. Um, and then we start thinking of all of the, the things we need to get done to make sure that justice gets done in the world. Um, Paul begins with God and says, God is the worker of justice. God works justice um, by giving life, <laughs> Uh, and God gives life to the dead through uh, the uh, God gives life to the dead to those who trust God. Okay, so um, so justice begins with God. Justice is God's work, um, and uh, the very first um, meaning of being just for us is trusting that God is the one who does justice. Um, that then becomes our participation in or our share sharing in God's justice. And I make, I, I emphasize also uh, a, a, the fact that Paul speaks of Abraham's walking in justice. Okay. Um, 
I think that active verb of walking in justice means then that it isn't simply a passive, that Paul isn't thinking of a passive reception of some kind of declaration from God about our justice, but rather uh, that um, Abraham's trust in the God who accounts him just is displayed, that, ju- that trust is displayed in Abraham's walking towards uh, an end which he cannot see, namely that he will inherit the world, uh, you know. Uh, so um, by, by Paul's time, the, the language of inheriting the world has taken on for many Jews quite, quite an expansive meaning. Um, and Paul doesn't deny, Paul doesn't say, hey, reduce your expectations. Uh, he, but he says, um, how you get from, how Abraham gets from where he is, namely, he and his wife are both effectively dead in terms of procreation, um, how he gets from there to inheriting the world is by trusting God, who has promised that to him, um, and walking in the way that God shows him to walk. So, so it's not by reducing expectations for a whole new world, but rather by um, trusting God and walking in that trust toward that new world. All right. And in uh, Romans 5, 1 through 11, Paul talks about how we have been reconciled to God and declared righteous. But then you make a very interesting connection to just war with that. So how do you tie all those together? Yeah, well, um, reconciliation is at the center of, of that, uh, that particular text, Romans 5, 1 to 11. And, um, and uh, Paul speaks there of God. Um, well, uh, you know, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, ra- rarely will anyone die for a just person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, um, Christ died for us much more surely than, uh, and so on. Um, for, if we, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life, and so on. In other words, um, there are there are all these ways in which uh, God reaches across the gap of sin and enmity and ungodliness to establish um, to, to to bring us into right relation with God. Um, one can't imagine that um, within that profound theological context one can um, carry on as if somehow or other we hold the ultimate right of life and death in our hands um, Mm. to um, go to war against our enemies, to go to war against the ungodly, to go uh, to war against those sinners there, and so on and so forth. Um, Rather, we dwell within that reconciliation and uh, find those ways in which um, uh, that reconciliation works out uh, in, in the enmities of this world. Um, yeah, so it's that move there. 
and right. I, I mean, that's certainly not the only place that where I think Paul preaches a gospel of peace, uh, of reconciliation and peace. It, it pervades the letter. I mean, even at a very practical level, uh, in Romans 14, for example, where you get people who might otherwise be at, at odds with one another gathered at the same table and needing to find ways not only not to fight, but to build up the other. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah. All right. And in um, chapter 5, in your chapter 5, you're also addressing Romans 5, and we have the themes there of uh, the contrasting the person and role of Adam and Christ, the second or the final Adam. So what is important here? What's of theological significance in terms of justice? Um, probably, uh, probably the way in which Paul emphasizes that whatever happened in Adam— and I, I believe Adam is, I mean, I, I don't know what, what was in Paul's head with respect to Adam, but certainly Adam is this representative character of the whole human race, okay? Um, and uh, so for Paul, whatever happened in Adam, and bad things did happen in Adam, okay? Um, sin as a power entered into the world, uh, and it's interesting that sin and death are all the way through uh, Romans 5, 12 to, well, really, the end of chapter 7, um, sin and death are understood to be active powers in the world, okay? Uh, well, whatever entered into the world um, through Adam's sin is vastly overcompensated um, by what happens in the world through God's work in Jesus, through Jesus Christ's obedience and justice, okay? Um, and, and, uh, and I think that's something that's often forgotten. It's, it's, it's often thought, look, something happened in Adam, and, and God fixed it, as it were, uh, in Christ. But um, Paul's point is that God radically overcompensates for anything that Adam undid in the world, um, or introduced into the world uh, by Adam's sin. So we live in the reality of God's overcompensating um, grace. Um, in, uh, uh, I think that's Paul's point in Romans 5. God's grace radically overcompensates for whatever happened in Adam. And in uh, chapter 6, um, you address concepts of being in Christ, yielding to God, obeying God. So how do these all relate to each other, and what are we to take away from that? Well, there I think, um, you know, whatever one's view of baptism might be in terms of a sacrament or, or so on, Certainly, Paul understands baptism to be um, that bodily incorporation of one's person into the, the reality of Jesus Christ, uh, both his crucifixion and his resurrection. So, dying and rising with Christ. In other words, um, my, my story, if you want to put it this way, is no longer mine. It is now. It is now having. It, it has been taken up into 
the story of the Messiah and um, his, his death becomes my death. His life becomes my life. Um, how I go on now living my life is lived out from that reality, not, not lived into it, but lived out from that reality because I've been taken into that reality um, uh, by God himself through the spirit. I've been taken into the reality of Jesus Christ. That, that's where I live um, in, in a kind of inescapable way now. What is it about law and justice in Romans 7 that you see? Uh, Paul talks about a marriage analogy and the trinity of law, sin, and death. Yeah. So, you know, starting really uh, early on in the letter, Paul um, uh, is not in... uh, Paul is not saying that the law as such is the problem. Um, and by that he means the law of Moses, but I think also in some uh, larger sense he means law. Uh, it is is uh, the fact that there is a law, um, whether it's the law of Moses or um, the the law of the land, is that the fundamental problem? I don't think so. What pro- what Paul says is the problem is that the this power this uh, ungodly power, sin, co-ops the law. And so, mm. so the problem with law is not that it's there, but that it is not strong, if you want to put it that way, okay? Uh, and so I go, I go into a rather lengthy analysis of uh, what I call weak law and strong law, okay? Uh, weak, weak law is the, the way in which we, uh, in, in any given society, just kind of run our lives so that lives go smoothly okay we all we all have some kind of laws operative even if these laws aren't written um and even if they're not declared as um uh the law uh, against which we can uh, if 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 we disobey somebody can launch a criminal uh um uh, case against us no I call I, I use Charles Taylor's notion of the social imaginary or or a form of life. Okay, and so all societies have these forms of life by which people, by and large, abide. And they're not abiding by them because they say there's a law out there that's telling me to do this. No, they're abiding by them because this is how life goes, and this is how life goes well. But sometimes I think uh, when sin takes hold of that, then law becomes. Uh, a kind of power that we see over against us, or uh, and, and and it can be used over against the ordinary life of people. You know, I mean, there's just all kinds of examples in which, um, when law gets dominated by um, power and uh, greed and so on and so forth, the law itself comes to function against life rather than for life, okay? And, and so that's kind of what I mean there. And I think for Paul, I mean, I, I think Paul believes the law of Moses is, well, as he says, holy and righteous and good, right? So, um, so uh, there, there's a sense in which Paul embraces the law, but he also sees the ways in which under... Um, 
another power, the power of sin. The law can be turned against life rather than for life. And, and that's kind of what I, uh, what I want to unpack in, in Romans 7. Um, just to show that Paul isn't, isn't simply setting up this uh, division between law and justice, okay? Um, uh, so this would be comparable to what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He's contrasting the Pharisees' righteousness or justice along with what he's talking about, which is getting at the heart of the law. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Is, does the law, you know, does the law functioning properly give life? Or when it functions improperly, does it begin to work for the power of death? Um, you know, at the end of Romans 7, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Okay. Well, it's not, it, the law is not a body of death in and of itself, but it is a body of death when it begins to u- be used um, uh, for purposes other than life. Yeah. And how do you tie in the marriage analogy there in relationship to justice? What's key about that? Yeah, well, there's there's some reversals that go on in the first part of um, Romans 7, where Paul says, uh, where Paul, using the analogy of marriage, says that, um, uh, I, I would have to actually go back, but, but, but basically says uh, that um, um, we're married to the law, um, one is married to the law, but uh, and and so in order to get free of this this marriage, um, one member has to die. Okay, <laughs> um, but but what's interesting is that so, so initially the, the law is construed as the husband who has rights, as it were, over the wife. Uh, so you'd think that if the wife. Uh, if if the wife wants to be freed from, shall we say, the dominating husband, the husband has to die. But oddly, Paul says, well, actually, the wife has to die <laughs> in order to be freed. So so he kind of flips things around a little bit, um, has to has to die to that dominating husband. Um, yeah, so so he, he kind of flips things around there. Um, uh and and by that he simply means look, we all need to uh, share in. I mean, this is coming out of Romans chapter six. We all need to share in the death of Christ, okay, in order that we might be freed for um, a new life. And and uh, and and so that's what he means. Basically, it's a it's it's a death uh, with respect to the law in order to be raised up. Uh, again, on the other side of that, but not in order to abandon law, but rather that the law might become life-giving again. Does that and make sense? Romans, yes. And in Romans 7, uh, Paul talks about his um, his personal situation, but more. He's, he's talking in the first person, and a lot of scholars disagree on how we're to understand that. Yeah. But um, it sounds like you see him more as referring to humanity, 
rather than just himself. Yeah, I mean, he certainly he certainly has his own understand his. his uh, let me put it this way: he certainly knows himself to have been crucified with Christ, right? Um, and and so, in some sense, um, he speaks out of his own life. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore. Um, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And, and in, in, in a sense, you know, when he uses the analogy of marriage, he says uh, the wife, uh, in order to be married to another, has to die to the law. Well, the marriage there is to be married to Christ. But um, in that marriage to Christ, then, um, uh, you could say Paul's life is given back to him. He doesn't cease to be a Jew. He doesn't cease to be a law-observant Jew. Um, but now the law is functioning out of the reality of Christ rather than, as it were, leading toward the reality of Christ or um, being the basis for living in Christ. Um, rather, the law now becomes embraced again, shall we say, on the other side of that death as uh, something that can once again give form to life, uh, give shape to life. So, yeah, Paul is speaking, I believe, in in um, broader terms than his own personal existence, but but certainly in the background there, uh, his own personal life gives him a lot to talk about uh, or, or a way of uh, speaking about these larger realities. Yeah. So it's not, again, uh, I, don't, I don't think you can simply read um, uh, Romans 7 individualistically, either individualistically relative to Paul or individualistically relative to us in general. Right, because I found the problem that I hear is people say, Paul was such an amazing disciple and apostle and did all these great acts. But look, he was still so captive to his own sin. He couldn't even do what he wanted to. He yeah. still continue, continued in all this sin. And I want to say, no, that's not really what the passage is saying. No, no, it's not. Um, yeah. So, and we should be encouraged by that because yeah, there is no, Romans I, I, 8. I, again, you know, uh, tying it into going all the way back to, to Romans 5, 12 through Romans 6 and into Romans 7, it's all about um, it's all about living out of the reality of Christ, out of God's justice done in Jesus Christ, about being incorporated into that justice, and then receiving the law again um, on the other side of uh, this crucifixion, receiving the law again as part of life. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it goes way beyond that. I, I, don't think it, I don't think Paul is struggling um, in that chapter. I think he's just right. kind of dis- displaying a certain story, if you want to put it that way. Right, right. So, moving on into Romans 8, um, you examine the spirit of justice in Romans. And here's a quote. Romans is passionately focused on a revolution in history that will emancipate history from the never-ending cycle of wars and treaties, triumphs and defeats, justices and injustices, crimes and punishments. So, what is the justice revolution in Paul's theology here and what does it have to do with the crucifixion? Yeah. Well, 
the justice revolution has to do with um, how justice makes its way in the how, how the justice of God makes its way in the world. It makes its way in the world by the Spirit at work in the community, um, in, in in the community of the Messiah. Okay, and um, and and that means that um, well, I think for Paul it means you need to be crucified to the way, typical ways in which we think uh, justice, even God's justice, moves in the world. And again, we think that God's justice moves in the world by, um, by our capacity to exert power uh, over others. And so Christians have typically been, um, really from third and fourth centuries on, have, have typically thought that, look, if we want to see God's justice um, working in the world, what we need to do is uh, get our hands on the levers of power and as much as possible exercise that power um, against enemies, against sinners, against the ungodly, so that God's justice is established in the world. And um, just think of all the horrors that have come about because Christians I think that way. I mean, think right now of Archbishop Kirill in Russia, you know, who's all cozied up with Putin, who um, on Easter Sunday makes the sign of the cross standing beside the bishop. Uh, I mean, come on, you know? It's but still happening. That's still an extreme, I mean, that might be an extreme example, but I mean, this is the way Christians have habitually um, thought about the way God's justice makes its way in the world. It makes its way in the world when Christians can exert as much power as possible to um, uh, against ungodliness and against injustice and and so on and so forth uh, to make sure that the Christian way is established in the world. And, and of course, once you're using those means, then you can no longer even discern what is just and what is not just. No, uh, justice just is like we you, have in Russia. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're fighting for justice, so the rhetoric goes right. Um, they. Uh, I mean, I don't know what Putin believes himself. I think, I think Putin knows he's a liar. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the, the rhetoric that goes out there and that's believed by the Russian people is that somehow or other this is some kind of work of justice uh, that needs to be done, um, brutal as it may be. Hmm. So the spirit of justice works fundamentally differently. It works It works in the manner of Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, so that crucial hinge point in Romans chapter uh, 8, verses 17 to 18. You know, he, Paul gets builds up into this rhetoric of inheriting the world, right? Uh, once again, but then he says, but only if we suffer in and with the Messiah, Right. Um, and, and then he goes into this whole passage about waiting in hope, about the, the cre all creation groaning, um, uh, and so on. So, so clearly, this, this whole, the whole rhetoric that builds up to Romans 8.17 8, doesn't lead him to say, okay, now let's get out there and uh, be the great champions of God's justice in the world by um, accomplishing as much as we can uh, to get control over the world. Um, exactly. By the, the cross. 
exactly the opposite. The cross is at the center. The cross is at the center of the movement of God's justice in the world. Yeah. All right. And you also talk about concepts of ultimate justice and cosmic justice um, later on in Romans 8 there. Mm-hmm. What exactly do you mean by those? Well, probably the shortest way to say that is uh, uh, ultimate justice and cosmic justice are um, the triumph of God's love in the world. Um, so, um, I mean, you know, you hear again, often rhetoric of ultimate justice. So what's ultimate justice with respect to a criminal execution. Okay. (laughs) What's, what's ultimate justice with respect to, uh, bad states in the world, um, triumph in war. Okay. So, uh, and always these are, uh, at, at the core of these is death. Um, God's ultimate justice working in the world is life and ultimately the triumph of God's love, as Paul concludes in, in uh, Romans, at the end of Romans 8. Yeah. So that's very hopeful. The great reversal is we who are called to die, not to kill. It, exactly. So in Romans 9 through 11, you get some really difficult territory to interpret, and you get people coming from all different places in that. Uh, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and then predestination is brought into that. Um, so how are we to understand God's justice in relation to Israel and the nations, the Gentiles? Yeah. Well, it's probably important to... Uh, start in Romans 8, right toward the end, where Paul is speaking about the triumph of, of God's love. Um, and uh, he says, uh, who, will, who will separate the elect from God's love? Nothing at all. And, and so the interesting thing is that Paul brings in the con- concept of God's elect there. Um, and then with that quote from... Um, uh, I believe it's Isaiah. Um, or is it a Psalm? Psalm 44, maybe. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, there I think Paul is anticipating already um, his uh, discussion of Israel. Um, and so he's incorporating the people Israel as a whole into this whole story of um, of cruciform justice, okay? He's fully aware that Israel has suffered persecution and is suffering uh, oppression in his own time. Um, and he's also acutely aware that what he hasn't answered is the question, what is God continuing to do with Israel, even as Israel as a whole, as a whole people, has not um, confessed Jesus as its Messiah. So that's, so he, he carries on, and as you say, it's a very, very complicated and convoluted uh, uh, text, uh, and there are actually some um, interesting translation issues uh, that I'm still working through. Uh, a, a friend of mine, um, an independent scholar, is, has, uh, is just publishing an article in uh, the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters um, that uh, reads, for example, 
uh, Romans 9, 6. Typically, it's translated somewhere along these lines. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all Israelites belong to Israel, or not all Israelites are Israel. He argues uh, that basically Paul is saying, Paul is addressing a rhetorical question. So he argues, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for are not all Israelites Israel, or not is not all Israel Israel? And then he goes on mm. to read the following verses. So I mean, there's still translation issues. That that actually it's a big difference to to construe that as um, a rhetorical question along those lines. Really, kind of sets a whole different agenda for Romans nine to 12, nine to eleven. <laughs> And uh, it's a, I think it's a brilliant um, article and one that would, in some ways, change my reading of Romans 9 to 11. But the overarching thing is, uh, is this, okay? Um, Israel was always, in the Old Testament, and I believe for Paul, the representative nation. The nation chosen from the other, among the other nations to witness to the reality of God, uh, of God's goodness and justice in the world, okay? Now, when Israel does not uh, confess the, the apocalypse of God's justice in the world in Jesus Christ, that leaves Paul saying, so what is God doing with this nation then? This nation that was to be the very kind of sign of God's justice in the world. And so uh, the upshot is, uh, notice that I, I titled this chapter, I think, Justice Among the Nations, Israel, okay? Um, and, and I think Paul's whole point here is that God's, the reality of God's justice in Jesus Christ is ultimately manifest in Israel. Um, in the first instance, in Israel's suffering, uh, and in this second instance, in Israel's resurrection from the dead, <laughs> okay, um, so that um, so, so so that whatever Israel's current state is, it is it is not out of God's hands, and in fact, God will continue to manifest His own justice in Jesus Christ through Israel, uh, even in Israel's suffering. Um, so so Israel shares in the suffering of Christ, uh, as far as I'm concerned, in that section. But ultimately, Israel will be raised from the dead. All Israel will be saved, Paul comes to the conclusion. And so precisely there, uh, Israel continues to be that witness to the reality of God's justice in Jesus Christ amongst the nations. I, I, I think that's finally what Paul is arguing there. Um and, and the, the ultimate manifestation of that will be when God redeems all Israel. And what does that mean, all Israel? I mean, that's got to be one of the most debated phrases means, in all of Romans. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a great controversy over that. Many people think that all Israel means uh, all those, uh, whether Gentiles or Jews, who are in Christ. Okay, so that's a very standard reading. In other words, to use N.T. Wright's language, Paul redefines Israel as the Jew-Gentile community. Um, 
But you can't read Romans 9 to 11 and think that Paul, when he's writing about Israel, he has anything else in mind than the historic fleshly right. people Israel. Okay. Yes. Um, from beginning to end of Romans 9 uh, to uh, all the way to 11. So, um, so he has in mind the people Israel in its concrete historical fleshly reality. Which now includes a nation, an actual nation with boundaries and people beyond. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 I mean, I think Paul continually maintains the distinction between the Israel and the nations. So the nations, too, are taken up into the reality of Christ. That's, that's how they are redeemed, okay? Um, but they're redeemed as nations, as Israel is redeemed as Israel, okay? And they are brought together. And this is why, again, in Romans 14 uh, and Romans 15, the first part of Romans 15, Paul um, has in mind... Uh, in that ultimate vision of the redemption of the world, um, Israel as God's people, um, bringing their praise and worship together with the nations now as redeemed by God. Um, uh, I don't think the distinction between Israel and the nations ever disappears um, in Paul's understanding. And, and the fact is, you go to Revelation 21 uh, for, for the author of that, the distinction between Israel and the nations is sustained even there. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you look at, uh, you know, the, the, the gates and the foundations, for example, of the new Jerusalem. A- anyway, um, that's another story. But, right. uh, but Paul sustains throughout the entire letter of the Romans the distinction between Israel and the nations, the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. Um, they're all caught up into God's justice and redemption in Christ, but they're caught up as Jews and as Gentiles, which is, of course, why Paul does not want anyone to impose circumcision or the Jewish way of life on the Gentiles. Um, they're the nations. Their problem is idolatry. Okay, Um, they need to come to know the true God. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to be made into Israel. Um, They need to live obediently and justly as the nations, just as Israel needs to live obediently and and justly as Israel. Which takes us to chapter 12, which is all about, therefore, that all this, everything else I've said is true. This is how we need to live. So, um, in your chapter 10, as you're looking at uh, Romans 12, you focus on messianic public service. Yeah. And you see that in bodies and minds, the new body politic, uh, life on the streets and the neighborhoods. So, what are you getting at here? What is, what is your writing all about on this topic? Yeah. Well, yeah, you'll, you'll, you will have noticed that I've kind of divided the, the book into... Uh, into two, well, I've divided the book into two parts. The first is called Apocalyptic Justice. So this is all about God's um, manifesting and enacting and doing and establishing and moving justice in the world through Christ and the Spirit, okay, um, into which we are caught up. 
and given a new kind of agency in that um, in that context. The second section of the book um, is called Messianic Life, and by that I mean a life patterned after um, the form of life that Jesus himself lived. Um, in other words, that life that culminates on the cross, um, and it culminates on the cross because Jesus enacts a very different form of power in the world, um, God's power in the world, right, which is manifest ultimately uh, on the cross. So, so what does uh, the life of a community that patterns itself after the Messiah look like? And um, and that's what I call messianic life. So Paul begins to unpack that in Romans 12 um, in, in a kind of expanding sphere of relationships. You know, what's it like with respect to these people who gather together as the Christian community? What's it like with respect to strangers, show hospitality to strangers? What's it like with respect to enemies? Uh, and so on. So, um, uh, and, and in each of those spheres of relationship, uh, the pattern is, messianic or christoform as um or how does michael gorman put it uh yeah christoformity right uh so it's 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 formed after the pattern of the messiah and uh and that leads seamlessly then for paul into romans 13 where he speaks about the relationship of messianics as i call them or the messianic community the relationship of of messianics to the wider political powers. What's what's our relationship with them? Yeah. Okay. And how the phrase though, uh, the new body politic. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So you know, often Christians uh, understand, particularly in modernity, uh, where religion and politics got separated from one another, uh, and most people think that that's the best thing that could have happened. Um, so that religion deals with my inner spiritual life and um, my relationship with God uh, and so on. And then politics deals with everything else that really matters. Um, I, uh, this has been part of my, um, I don't know, theological agenda for <laughs> really for my entire uh, career. The Christian community enacts a different politics. It is not a religious community that pays attention to what goes on in your spirit. I mean, it's that too, but it is a community that lives out a different kind of politics or a different kind of power in the world. Um, and it lives that out as a community. It lives that out in its relations to others, even to, to strangers and enemies. It lives out a different kind of politics. That's what I mean by it's, it is a body politic. Um, uh, the Christian community is a political entity in the world, but the politics it's living out in the world is the politics of Jesus. Okay, that politics, that 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 kind of political. Let me put it that this way: that power in the world which Jesus Himself enacted, um, and which looks like no power, <laughs> because ultimately He is nailed to a cross, right? And yet, the whole New Testament speaks of the cross as the place where divine power is ultimately manifest. Mm. Okay. And we know that because divine power raised Jesus from the dead. So, so this whole conjunction of crucifixion and resurrection 
is the nexus of divine power. And, and so it's embodying that power in the political existence of the Christian community that is the task of messianic life. Does that make sense? Okay, good. And to follow up on that then, you use the phrase messianic patience, and that's in light of the injustice that we face. Right. So what does all that have to do with freedom? Yeah. Um, well, messianic patience, I, I mean, maybe you can ask the question, why, why are there, why are there th- uh, well, depending on how you count it, but well, why is Jesus raised up on the third day and not in the instant he expires on the cross? Okay. Mm. To a certain extent, this opens up that space of patience. I mean, um, where, where, where were all of those expectations of divine power that were put on Jesus when he was nailed to the cross? Um, they went, shall we say, into limbo. <laughs> As the, as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped right. <laughs> that he would redeem Israel, right? Um, so, so, in a sense, it, uh, um, messianic patience is that, is that patience in that time when it looks like there is no divine power at work. Um, be, and, and part of that is because we've thought divine power looked like something. It looked like the most powerful person in the world or the most powerful empire in the world or that empire which is oppressing uh, Judea at the time. Or, or, you know, that's what divine power looks like. And that's what, throughout human history, we have always thought divine power looks like. It is the power to crush our enemies. Okay? Um, And all of that went away on the cross. And so it looks like nothing. Um, And that's why I kind of emphasize here and there throughout the book that if we're going to think of divine power, we have to look in other places (laughs) or better put, we have to look in this place, namely the cross of Christ and that power by which God raises Jesus from the dead. But again, what does that look like in the world? And so it is a radical shift of our perception of divine power that has to um, uh, that that we have to undergo, and and that requires then that when we don't see justice happening the way we think it should happen, the way it in some senses just obviously has to happen, when we don't see that, we lose hope. When we don't see that, we say God isn't real (laughs) or alive. Um, But it's in those moments that we're called to patience. Uh, It's in those moments that we have to await God's work in the world and, uh, in a sense, give ourselves over to that work, which doesn't look like much. And so it's it's in those small things, like, uh, how am I in relation to my neighbor? How am I in relation to those gathered at the table with me? How am I in relation to the stranger who shows up? Um, how am I in relation to those who want to do me harm? 
um, uh, that that's where that's where often maybe we don't see uh, the big divine work going on, but that's where the divine work is going on. Okay, in these seemingly powerless events, if you want to call it that way, which don't look like much at all, but nevertheless, as far as Paul is concerned, that's where God's power is being manifest. Does that make sense? Yes. And so with Romans 13, then, um, we have it, we need to interpret in light of the authorities, the governing powers, and the fact that they bear the sword. And of course, so many believers do not read Romans 12 and Romans 13 together. They That's see right. one as re, Romans 12 is related only to individual relationships and Romans yeah. 13 relating to the bigger political picture. But obviously you've shown how Romans 12 has ev- everything to do with politics. So in Romans 13 then, how are believers called to relate to political authorities and what does that have to do with anarchy and freedom? And you probably better define anarchy for us. Yeah. Well, in the first place, uh, I spent quite a bit of time asking the question, what does the verb hupokasso mean, which gets translated submit or be subject to? And I, um, I, I, in the first instance, say there's a whole lot of things it cannot mean. It can't mean be loyal to. It can't mean uh, put your faith in. It can't mean, uh, ob- it doesn't even mean obey, okay? Almost Almost everybody thinks submit to the governing authorities means obey them. Um, but Paul doesn't use the word obey. And, and so my point there is simply to say uh, that my overall point is to say that, look, Paul isn't ignorant of the fact that there are political powers working out there. You got to acknowledge them. Yeah, they're there. And they're not there apart in some sense from God's working, although I don't think Paul actually spells out in any kind of detail how God is at work. He's just saying, look, they're powers, but they're not a power beyond God because they're there because, by God's permission, right? Okay, so um, so, so he's, not, he's not saying, it, well, he is almost saying ignore them, but he's not saying, look, you don't, what he's saying is you don't have to take these powers as in any way seriously. <laughs> it, in the sense of participating in God's work in the world. They're there. They do things. They might even have some kind of um, divine um, work to do because God doesn't simply abandon the world. Um, But it's not your work. (laughs) It's not the work of the Christian body politic to do the work of the powers that be. It's the work of the Christian body politic to do the work of the Messiah, which is Paul's, and and you're exactly right, to disconnect Romans 13 from Romans 12 is the worst thing you can do. The body politic um, of, of the Messiah is the work that we are called to do in the midst of the fact that there are other powers at work in this world that are doing what they do. Um, by anarchy, I simply mean, look, the Christian body politic doesn't really have to concern itself that much with what that 
other what other body politics are doing according to the powers of this world okay there's not there's not a single gospel word in Romans 1 uh, to uh, Romans 13 1 to 7 there's there's not a single word attributed to the powers that be that is a gospel activity so so Paul's basically saying look they're doing something and Whatever they're doing is not apart from God's own doing, but the Christian, the messianic body politic, has other work to do (laughs) and doesn't require acknowledgement from, doesn't require um, acceptance by, doesn't require uh, power from this wider body politic. It has its own work to do. It carries on with its own work. And it manifests the reality of the gospel in that work, not in its capacity somehow or other to get the powers that be on its side or to be on the side of the powers that be, which is often the case. Okay, good, good. And now in Romans 14 and 15, Paul's talking about the strong and the weak. He's talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles again and God's justice, and you use the phrase messianic solidarity. So what's key for us to understand in these chapters relating to God's justice? Well, I think somewhere say at the beginning of one of the chapters is that God's justice begins at the table. Um, That is, in the gathering of um, Jews and Gentiles at a common table. And, and my point there, um, which relates to earlier things I've said, my point there is that, is that Paul isn't imagining that everybody has to be doing the same thing, or, or more specifically put, everybody doesn't have to be eating the same food. The important thing is that they are gathered at that table with the purpose of building one another up rather than judging or despising one another for what they're eating. And, and of course, what you eat in many respects uh, reflects who you are, the kind of culture you, you you live in, the kinds of beliefs you hold. I mean, we know that food is important, and certainly for Jewish people, food is very important, right? What kinds of food they eat, how it's been prepared or slaughtered or whatever um, is all crucial. Um, probably typical to Roman Gentiles, they they look down on all of these rules about eating that the Jews had. And the Jews may well have judged the Romans for just eating everything, right? <laughs> so, um, so, so, so the issue for Paul is, how do these two groups, who otherwise would be in some way or another despising or condemning one another, how do they gather at the common table, a common table, eat and drink together, and build one another up in that eating and drinking rather than tearing one another down. That is divine reconciliation, that is divine justice at work in that concrete gathering of two groups formerly at odds with one another. So um, so it's interesting, uh, I, I point this out, it's interesting how much Eating and drinking uh, is present there in many of Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, um, Romans, and so on. You know, matters of eating and drinking, who you're eating and drinking with, um, and so on and so forth, are, are crucial. 
Um, but they're crucial only in the sense that when Jews and Gentiles are gathered together, these do not become the occasion of enmity or quarreling or despising or judging. And, and the whole emphasis in Romans 14 for Paul is we gather together in our differences in order to build the other up, um, not to take the other down, not and, and not to make the other person like me, okay? Jews can't expect the Gentile believers at the table to eat only kosher. Gentiles can't expect the Jews to abandon their, uh, their, their Jewish way of life, according to the law of Moses, and eat like Gentiles. Um, each is gathered there, each with their own food, for the sake of building one another up in their um, faith. Yeah. So Messianic solidarity is that both groups are in solidarity with Jesus the Messiah and therefore with each other in Absolutely. spite of their differences. Yeah, that's, that's a way shorter and better way of saying it than I just said. <laughs> okay. So then uh, finally in um, the end of chapter 15 and then chapter 16 of Romans, you're dealing with uh, mission and friendship. And what does that have to do with justice? And what's crucial for us to understand there? Well, in the rest of Romans 15, so basically from, from uh, what is it, verse 7 on, um, Paul does go on to describe his mission. And um, maybe it's from 13 on anyway. Uh, Paul, Paul goes on to describe his mission. And I, and I talk a lot about uh, Paul's mission and his understanding of um, what it means that the result of his mission is so small. <laughs> okay. So by, by the end of Paul's life, but certainly by the time Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, what are there? Maybe a thousand believers in Messiah in that whole span of territory he's covered in, three, in two missionary journeys. Is it three by now? Anyway. Um, and why is Paul fine with that? Like you'd think, look, if I'm going, if, if I have this good news that is for all peoples and all nations, um, and uh, and everybody should believe this, why is Paul fine with just a small community in this city and a small community in that city and a small community in that province? Um, well, I think he again. I, I think Paul believes God is at work in the world. Okay. And that these small communities testify to God's work in the world. He isn't driven to conquer the world in any other way than through the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, with, with that divine power that um, Jesus the Messiah is the manifestation of. And, and so... In one way, that's a, that's a message to the whole notion of Christian mission. Um, 
thank God for these small manifestations of divine power and don't worry about conquering the world. Um, boy, had the whole colonial enterprise remembered that, things might be radically different. Um, when you think of the ways in which Christians went out with colonial power on their side and felt that it was their time, and we have this whole residential school thing here in Canada, you know, where the church and right. the government work together to basically um, Christianize the indigenous peoples, which meant effectively to Europeanize them um, and uh, effectively destroyed them as people. They, they, they wanted to see these clear manifestations of the conquest of Christianity, which for them meant Europeanism. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, so, man, had, had we not thought of, had the church not thought of mission radically different throughout its history, what a difference it would have made. So there's the issue of friendship, too, because Paul addresses so many people, so many individuals exactly. in his letter. So how does that tie in mission and friendship tie together? Well, in a sense, they're, they're one and the same, uh, becoming, uh, you know, becoming friends of one another um, in witness, really, is the very nature of mission. Um, and again, you know, uh, when I say becoming friends of one another, I don't mean cozy, intimate relationships with everyone. I mean, we can only sustain a few of those in our lives. Um, but I mean um, entering into those relationships of honor and respect and grace and mutual upbuilding um, that, um, that testify to, to God's power in the world. Um, so, so in that sense, you could say friendship and mission are, 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 are part of the same thing, you know, becoming friends of God and one another, um, in this community, which bears witness to divine power in the world, um, small and invisible as it may be. <laughs> All right. Well, good words to live by. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Dr. Douglas Herrick, uh, Emeritus Professor of Theology at the King's University, and we've been looking at the Book of Romans and the theme of justice. So we'll have Dr. Herrick's book uh, available. Follow the link below, and um, peace to everyone. Thanks so Thank much, Dr. Herring, for being with us today. Thank you, Dennis, for this uh, opportunity to... Uh speak about the book and more importantly to testify to God's justice. <laughs>